of Spirit Walking with Asa Hoffman. And this is uh, Perspectives on the Reemergence, the series that we're on. Um, no martini glass tonight. I know, I, I miss it. Uh, <laughs> but there's no Mike Kelton to drink my martinis with. So, uh, so no martinis tonight. But tonight will be no less exciting and no less fun. I have, I think, uh, was going to be one of our most interesting guests to date with me tonight. Uh, her name is uh, Eva Anastasia. Um, she's an esoteric artist, uh, performer, ritual maker, uh, but Eva is also just an incredible human being. So much heart and love. I have not actually spent that much time with her, but but have had the pleasure of uh, sharing a wonderful meal and uh, and just been connected for a while now in the whole psychic realm. Um, <laughs> But she came into my life through Michael, actually, and through musical theater. And uh, uh, Michael connected with her in London and was like, oh, wait, you and Asa need to know each other. Um, and of course, it's Michael, so he wasn't wrong. Uh, <laughs> anyway, welcome, Aoife. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for saying yes. Of course, it's a pleasure. <laughs> uh, really exciting to have you here. I actually have my iPad with me because I did like there are certain subjects where I'm like, mm, I definitely want to cover those topics tonight with her. So I, I don't usually make notes, but I did put some subjects on there. Um, you know, you probably already read it in Eva's bio if you're uh, listening, but you know, she's, you know, we put in the bio or she put in there that she was living and performing in London and across the UK. Um, I don't know that she put in there. Uh, as a matter of fact, I know she didn't, but I'm going to tell you, she is a West End actress, uh, which if you don't know that, that's basically the Broadway of London. Um, and she's performed in the, uh, the musical works of theater writers and composers like uh, Stephen Sondheim, um, uh, also Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, and she's on top of this, and a photographer. Uh, she's a trained opera singer, started a little too young in her life. Um, she's a playwright and she's just a magical, mystical woman. <laughs> um, and to me, you know, I think that she's the quintessential Renaissance woman um, and just across so many spans. And we didn't even begin to scratch the surface of the psychic stuff. So and the spiritual sort of all of that. So which we'll get to as we go along. But, but that's my intro. So I hope I haven't embarrassed you too much. But I just feel like, you know, it's good to give people contact, context and, and to know, like, you know, like, I've got this amazing, interesting woman that I'm, I'm going to uh, get to as much as I can in the short time that we have, but like, wow. So um, anyway, needless yeah. to say, uh, I would like to really talk to you a little bit about, uh, I thought where we would start, I usually sort of wrap mm -hmm. up with and ask people more towards the end uh, about <clears throat> the reemergence and what they think it's about and how to sort yeah. of go through it in their perspective. But mm -hmm. I'm actually going to start there with you. Um, and I'm going to start there with you for a reason. Okay. Uh, because it's more, I'm going to tell you what I think, uh, and I want you to talk a little bit about your journey. So one of the things sure. I think is it's really about um, all of us learning to listen to our intuition, to be more in, in tune, inward tuned uh, in our relationship to the external. Um, and you have a very significant story, I believe, that led to you being in Ontario right now. Um, and I think it has to do with listening to your intuition and stuff. And I thought, you know, what a great example, even though it was, it was pre-COVID, but of course directly relates to COVID in this time frame. Um, I thought if you were well open to sharing it, that that would be like a really cool place to start with how you got there. Absolutely. 
Yeah, yeah. It, my COVID started a year earlier, mm. as most of the things in my life do. Maybe it's the oracular work or what have you, but I get a lot of heads up early on, sometimes to my own chagrin. I can trip myself up knowing in advance. But this particular decision, I was asked to come here to do a lecture on March 17th on my great uncle, the Abbey Theatre playwright. And, um, and I have this certain thing on my timeline when there's an inevitable event coming towards me that cannot be avoided, but it's major. It feels like a pane of glass coming towards me and I know it can't be missed. I can't go around it, I can't go under. It's something either personally very important or globally very important. So this pane of glass is coming towards me and I was thinking, oh God, you know, <laughs> what is this enormous, enormous thing and I always I sometimes call it the bug on the windshield and I'm on the highway and I have no choice I'm gonna meet this thing um, and I made this choice in a reading for someone else actually and I went I'm gonna go back I'm gonna go do that lecture and in that moment the pane of glass shattered and I was like oh oh so whatever I've done I've massively changed my trajectory and my destiny I've done something and it's just a one, one lecture. I had a light bag packed, come in, come out. But since last April 2019-ish, uh, I've been like, what is April 2020? What is it? And I was, I, I didn't know why or what I was doing, but I was slowly saying goodbye to a lot of things that we don't have now. Like I gorged on theater. I absolutely ate every art gallery I could find. Um, I traveled so much more than, than, you know, just for love, for passion, just to jump on a short haul flight. And, uh, and I was telling people, I said, while, we're, while we have free movement, while we have unencumbered travel, while we have the ability to do so, go do what you love and just get out and be together. And I was, I was this very strange <laughs> character last year. And uh, a lot of the, the crutches, the things I relied on emotionally were also removed. So like the Australian bushfires, a lot of things I was leaning on at the time, like healers I would visit, my osteopath, my hairdresser, I couldn't see them probably since last September. And I was like, wow, they're really getting me strong to get ready to live without these things. I don't really understand. I was made homeless for several months while my house had to be torn apart. And they took me out of my comfort zone and just spun, spun me out so fast and so far that actually I was free. By the time COVID hit, I came to Canada, and that and a reunion party for a show a company that I was in a million years ago. Um, those two things, I came in and the door kind of shut behind me. And I was like, well, that was that pane of glass. And thank you, <laughs> thank you team, <laughs> thank you powers that be. Um, we're here now, no brainer. I'm not, I'm gonna stay here with family in this beautiful, sane, safe little town with, with you know, great transport links, food from Amish farms, you know, the electricity or if that goes down or uh, if, if civilization crumbles. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I, I am absolutely put where I'm meant to be. And I was just, the lecture itself ended up being one of the first things on Zoom uh, in the, it was the day of lockdown, essentially. And I was just like, thank you, great uncle Thomas. <laughs> you know? I was just so grateful. Uh, and I know that being here, um, psychically so much easier, like Canada's really, we're being very good to each other and my body's been taken care of, I have family to talk to, but being alone in London in the psychic energy of what's going on there, the challenge that people are facing, I'm like, 
I would have survived, but it, I would have felt like a bug on a windshield, I think. It, it would have been a more, a more intense experience. So I feel very blessed and so glad that I, I listened and took that, that little door that opened so early on. Like, it was just a lecture, you know. Uh, it was a long yeah, to be, travel. To be clear, it was a small one-hour lecture that you yeah. are going to fly all the way from London to do this, like, one-hour yeah. lecture. Yeah, uh, and you were going to do a it. weird choice. I'm like, it's very expensive. <laughs> Middle yeah. of the year, it was one gig, and then there was a party. I'm like, oh, I'll go to the party, and maybe that's why I'm going. You know, you, you don't really know why you're going, but if you listen and trust, you say yes. Uh, so I'm like, but for a whole year, I've been I'm like, what is April 2020? Why? Why have I, why do I feel, I did feel dread, I'm not going to lie. I, I felt the, the tension to come and the shift to come and that the feeling of the landscape when it's kind of been taken out from under your feet. I was, I've been feeling weird for months. So yeah, I think a lot of us have, like, I think a lot of us felt something, you know, it's not necessarily that we were predicting this, yeah. Uh, yeah. but we were feeling the shift and wondering. And, and I've heard that from astrologers looking at the astrology charts and psychics for being tuned in as well as mediums hearing from other people on the, the other side that are like you know get ready and you're like what are you talking about <laughs> get ready for what you'll see <laughs> um, yeah. uh, uh, we're gonna come back to great uncle thomas for sure uh we're gonna go there next in a minute but i want to hang here for a second and ask you a couple things so uh number one you know, um, just in general, even outside of like London and COVID, you know, yeah. I think you've had a lot of psychic growth and awareness and, and, and spiritual growth and awareness. I don't mean to just think about psychic, but to me, that's the same. Yeah. Um, so anyway, but you've had a lot of growth and awareness and awakening and growing and learning and expanding while you were over in London, oh, yeah. you know, uh, and in the time that you've lived there, you know, <laughs> and you've had such an incredible journey there. Do you find, though, that even if there wasn't COVID, that like being here in this place, do you find yourself being clearer around nature? Do you find it being more grounding, like, you know, uh, and more, it, has it been impactful on you in that way? Absolutely. Well, like I'm, I'm told most years I have to be back six weeks for the nervous system to um, heal. Like my DNA wants me here for, like, like I usually come back in the summer anyway. Um, I tried, I tried one year to sneak off to Norway thinking it was trees and fresh water and Canadiana. I'm like, oh, I can just go. And I, I had a, a, native, a native medicine man came in my, in my dreams and went, you don't just belong to a country. A country belongs to you. Go home. So I'm, re I'm required to be back here. And last year, I, just the absolute privilege, I was taken in by um, the Stony and Kettle Point uh, Reservation for one of their, they were having a peace and unity uh, celebration and I was invited into their sweat lodge. I was given names and tobacco and, you know, they, they were so glorious and generous and, and taught me a new level of family and acceptance. And uh, I absolutely love the, the spirituality of this, this land and the First Nations people that, that are so generous to let us be here. And I'm a child of immigrants. so when my parents landed here in the 60s, they're like, well, we must go to powwow and we must thank the native people of this place who, who've allowed us to live here. So I, I count it as a privilege to work with any medicine people here and the healers that are, that are here that I have contacts, like the medicine women and, and men I work with here as well. So um, I, I actually think the very nature of you thinking that way and being in tune that way and being raised with this idea that, to honor them and that they're allowing us, you know, in, in oh, their yeah. space. Um, 
causes a whole different level of relationship with the natives as well. So they, they yeah. respond, they, they, they know it in your energy, you know? Yeah. And, mm. the, and the land knows it. Yeah, yeah. You know, whether you realize it, that native telling you, no, come back to this land, like it's not going to be the same, that's because you have a relationship with that land that's, that's built on, on uh, something different than just, uh, I was born there. You know, it's yeah. more than that. And the, so, you say like the Celtic wheel and the medicine wheel are our family. Like they come together yeah. so beautifully. And we can also talk about oppression with the Irish and then the First Nations. We can, we have a similar oppression, well, not very different, but we both have oppression and survival and identity. So um, we, yeah, we had a lot to share. And I'm just, I'm just so grateful that I'm welcome, you know, yeah. every day. So in the reemergence, uh, more people learning to listen. Yeah. Uh, you know, and learning to tune, as I say, inward. Um, you know, and there's the obvious, and people know about meditating and certain things. Any, any, uh, and you don't have to answer now. You can sort of throw this one in the back of your head if you want for later. But any tips or things that you would say as far as people do during this time, just to become more in tune themselves yeah. and yeah. for themselves. So I mean, my um, my guides can be a little funny and a little tough sometimes, but uh, they said for those that resist this time, we're going to send in the meat tenderizer. <laughs> <laughs> which means it's so they're especially talking about people with financial who praise the financial over anything else they're saying it's going to feel like their meat's being broken down and flavored and savored so they're being marinated to become something delicious after this but it's gonna hurt like hell for some people in resistance so they're looking at me going you're pretty tender we'll, we'll let you off <laughs> i find spirit guides are often like this they really they have such a either sarcasm and funny in the yeah. image give you and and i sort of feel like uh it's a couple of things it's almost theater for them right like oh my god you know we're up here all the time reaching out and nobody's seeing us we have somebody paying attention let's put on a good show yeah. <laughs> my lot especially i don't know <laughs> yeah and i find you know as soon as i raise the flag and say you know i'm, I'm open it's like yeah. you know more than my guides come in right that's where it's, it's easy to get overwhelmed because it's like oh wait he pays attention i mean it's so uh, would be Goldberg and Ghost, where the room just gets full yeah. uh, very quickly. So one of my advices for everybody is, you know, really important to uh, set your grounding, to be grounded, and, yeah. uh, and to know that that uh, you are the one um, who, in some ways, controls the antenna or the connection on this end. So you get to say, like, one at a time, this is what I can handle, like, yeah. don't just be overwhelmed and... and you know, watch out for fear. Know that you can actually set your boundaries uh, in the center of the room. Oh, so. I have a secretary. I have a, a secretary in spirit who, who yeah. takes appointments. No, no, no. I, I had to build an amphitheater at one point. <laughs> have to move that there. You know, you need your space and you need to know. That's funny. I have a secretary too. Oh, you have to. You have to. <laughs> That's hysterical. Tell me it's kitten, kitten rimmed glasses and, <laughs> you know, all the, the nails painted. <laughs> First other person I've ever heard that said it that way, but yes. Um, I had to. I actually had to. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so we're going to turn. Okay. Let's we're going to talk about uh, Great Uncle Thomas, right? Great Uncle? Yeah. He's a great okay. uncle. <laughs> uh, and Thomas, it was T-H, what's his last name? I forget. Uh, uh, Thomas Hussein Nali. So my last name Nali. is Nali. Nali, yeah. that's right. Thomas Hussein Nali. And, uh, and I believe uh, he was also a playwright, uh, yeah. or he yeah. wrote a play. And if I remember this story correctly, I mean, this is a while ago since I heard it, but as I remember yeah. it, uh, the story itself is an invocation. 
um, and uh, you know, and so it's basically a ceremony or a ritual. Um, and every time that show has been performed, shit happens. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Whoa. Yeah. It it's happens. Like not just minor. Um, and uh, and and I think that you've sort of taken on the show to help continue its journey. Yeah. So. Do I have some of that correct or most of it or? Yes, yeah, so he's an interesting man. He, he was a chemist, an inventor, um, a playwright, an anthropologist, uh, illustrator. He was just, he was a Renaissance man in 1916-ish. Um, and he was really interested in Celtic spirituality, pagan spirituality and Christianity. And he may have been, and I'm still researching to figure this out, but he was a good friend of the poet Yeats and may have been one of the early members of the Golden Dawn. So he may oh. have been a ritual magician. We're not entirely sure. Um, he definitely went to a few meetings and was reading some of the materials, but I'm not sure he actually got how far he got into the magics. But um, I, I think like he definitely went to the bookstores I went to in London and I've accidentally followed his footsteps for years, not knowing that he was so magically inclined. So oh. he, um, the play he wrote is called The Spancel of Death. And it was, he was writing it about his great- Wait, wait, you went really fast. The play oh. he wrote was called what? The Spancel of Death. <laughs> I just wanted to sit on that for one moment. Go ahead. I get excited, <laughs> I get excited. And yeah. span, Spancel, it means spell. So it's a really evil spell, mm -hmm. basically. And um, he was writing about his great grandfather who had a run-in with a necromancer, which is a, you know, witch who was using defiling corpses to do really black magic to take revenge on the English landlord and to wow. take the power back for the people. So it, it was a really revolutionary play. And my uncle being the anthropologist he was, put in actual magic. So he reenacted the spell and it's basically a, it's horrific. Like, when I read it in the archives, in my little white gloves, I actually dropped the script because I was so shocked at how real the magic was, but how gory it was they actually were showing how you would take the skin from the corpse and wrap it with silks and call in the seven planets in the in 1777 and it it was like oh my god he's done it he's put the real thing in there um and it's fantastic i mean to watch it was fantastic but um the day it was meant to go up was easter 1916 and the uprising erupted in in dublin so the actors that were meant to do the play grabbed the guns from under their dressing tables went out to fight and die for Ireland, and the play didn't happen. And Yeats, in his letters, was saying, well, it either would have gone really, really well, or really, really not, i.e. <laughs> there might have been riots, you know, it was anti-church, it was anti-England, it was in half of it, well, quite a bit of it is a Gaelic, and it was like, it was so subversive in a, in a subtle anthropological kind of way. And because one of the actors came back because he forgot his gun, he, he put the gun underneath his dressing table and signed back his script to the stage manager. And that's why today we have one, one and a half copies of the script in existence in the Irish library. So I went in 2016 wow. to dig this up. And um, I'd always heard the myth of my uncle being the last man before the Abbey was shelled and the British set it alight and all of this, you know. Um, exciting stuff. And I, when the day I arrived, all the ancestors of those actors that had been in that play were meeting for the first time ever. And wow. they, they, they stopped me at the door and they went, no, 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 no. It's for descendants only. Uh, you can't come in. And I said, <laughs> and 
and they had the poster and I'm like, that's my uncle, that's, that's my guy. And uh, they were like, who is this man? Who is this, the unluckiest man in Irish theater, they call him, because he knew Joyce and he knew Shaw and he knew Singh and he knew Lady Gregory and Yates, but he, he just had, in their mind, the worst luck. And I'm thinking, maybe it was too powerful to go on. I mean, it could have been a higher power. So every time the play has been, tried, been, been attempted to put on, it's, it's something has gone wrong. The money has fallen through. Um, Yates tried to put it on several years, but people were too depressed and began, began to be afraid of it. So it was considered cursed in literary circles and notorious, like people would try and read it, but um, not quite get through it. Uh, so it was up to me. <laughs> like, I've got this living thing. It's like electric uh, sort of snake in my hands. And um, I, I got this abandoned Victorian music hall, gave me a, a grant to come and read this haunted play in this haunted place. And I gathered a group of incredible, brave Irish actors. And I, they really had to be from West Ireland, this tiny village. And um, I cast the play mostly by fate. So I walked into Covent Garden and literally went, show me where I'll find my actors. You know, and I met a man taking emails for a phone company happened to be from the west of Ireland from that particular town and he was an actor and I kind of got all my other actors through that and friends and tarot readings I just I did it intuitively as part of the the joy of the play so I never held auditions it was all by all by calling it in like stirring the cauldron and see who showed up basically and I got the most incredible incredible cast of Irish actors and uh how many actors are in the show eight eight altogether well they're meant to be eight um the astrologer who read it said you will have a cast of eight until the day of the show and i thought oh dear god who's going to die <laughs> and so the day the day before the show we've been rehearsing and rehearsing putting this together and i'm white knuckling it because sounds in the room things are being knocked over like one actor, very sensitive actor, kept praying. There were a lot of rosaries and hymns being sung. <laughs> like we were all, we were all on edge, um, but also fantastically interested. And they were so committed on behalf of my family and determined to help me break this curse. So they were in it. They were in it. I was so proud of them. But the night before the play was meant to go up, there was a huge ele election, and all the wrong people won, and the a really bad Irish lot were joining in with the, the Tory party and there was this political upheaval and then next door to the theater there were there was stabbings and terrorism and my uncle in spirit was like oh my god this is just like it was this upheaval and the violence in the street and and he was just like not again not again and I'm like we're doing this <laughs> you know <laughs> sheer determination um and it was really the turning point was that the women in the play that that suffered so hard and died so terribly and took these revenges at the cost of their own lives i realized we had to honor them so i got the cast together and we gave whiskey we gave whiskey and tobacco as you would with an irish lot and and flowers we gave them three seats in the house and we're like you please watch but would, will you let us will you let us complete this play on your behalf this is your story we're telling will you be on our side? And, and from that moment on, everything calmed down. One actor did walk. They walked about just before the run, they walked out the door. They just couldn't handle it. They, they, 
wow. political upset and everything just 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 shook him to his soul. So I restaged it two hours before the audience came in and we went down to seven, which is actually the magical number in the play, seven planets, seven colors, 1777. It was just like, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. But, and I stacked the audience with wizards and astrologers and and practitioners and and lots of heavy hitters were there. And and one of them said, um, I knew when we got through the the first four words that we were gonna survive to the end. (laughs) Oh geez. Ah, and the audience, when it finished, they they wouldn't leave. It's quite a shocking play, but they sat there with like uh, just mouths open and eyes wide. And I I actually had to get up and say, it, it is over. The curse is broken. You, you may go home. I actually had to break the spell, and and I did say, curse is over. You have done it. Thank you all. I had to kind of walked some people out because it's intense, and I've done well, it since, and it's still intense, but it's not cursed. <laughs> Well, Eva, I like adventure and I love this whole psychic realm. So you need to stalk an audience again. Please pick me. Yeah. (laughs) I'll I'll even pay for my seat (laughs) at the ceremony for sure. I want to be be there. Um, That's. You gave me me great advice to do it the second time. It was much, much safer when we called in the directions like you suggested. Yeah. Uh, Well, I I just suggested, and I remember saying, you know, the the problem with the play, without ever reading it, obviously, so I don't really know this, but just, you know, what I heard uh, from Mm -hmm. my team was the problem with the play is that there was no uh, grounding. There was no sort of like creating the space for it to happen in in a way that uh, it could be held here and for these people and then opened to go off and do what it is. And that the minute you do that, that would actually change the experience. And that was, that was, I would say, in some ways, might have been your, your uncle's short-sightedness was that he was getting this ritual in there, but forgetting to start with it, that all rituals should start with the basics, which is, you know, set your circle or set your direction, set your, you know, anchor the energy, ground it. Okay. Go to work, create sacred space. So. Yeah. But you'd be proud of me because like accidentally by, by fate, by charm, but whatever I did the spell in the play, I did absolutely the wrong direction. I did everything upside down. I, I just got dyslexic. I got north and south mixed up, and I undid the spell in the middle of the play. <laughs> wow! And I was like, "That's that they that was perfect." I, I that was a big, a big act of kindness on their part. Um, but yes, your advice was brilliant, and I I learned how to hold space differently since then, and I brought in more actually the golden dawn to hold my uncle and the space and they they were allowed to come and watch and that that really put pillars in place so now it's a little less exciting and that it's not so wild it's not so feral but it's still really entertaining i'm I'm in okay Okay. (laughs) Um, how much of this impact your so obviously there there's been uh spiritual or sort of like explorers you could say in your family for centuries um uh was it a normal part of your upbringing to be connected to to the spirit world? Um, yeah, oh that way of thinking was a normal part of your life. Like, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I come from traditional Irish Catholic background, which is always a bit pagan. Like, to be fair, the the saints yeah, are, read more like gods, and you know, the divine feminine is really strong, and the matriarchy. Um, sure. I, they- they wanted that. Listen, they they were uh, they were pulling in right the matriarchy. Yeah. Like, we have to get them in over here. Let's yeah. get our yeah. matriarch in here. But 
we'll honor them over there and it'll be okay. We'll make it work. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. We'll have Patrick, but, but bring in Bridget, of course. Yes. Yeah. So I'm already pretty set up for a magical life, but um, my father, I, through the, the Nowling side, my father's line, they're very clair, clairvoyant, very intuitive, like lots of hunches, so they wouldn't call it clairvoyancy, mm -hmm. but, but their intuition is sharp and excellent. And through my mother's side, I only recently found out my great-grandmother um, worked with Banshee, she said. And, um, you know, my mom used to, to brush her long white hair and <laughs> my grandmother would say, and this is the comb the Banshee gave me, you know, she would scare the bejesus out of my mom. And she would, she said she would hear voices on the wind mm -hmm. and she would know who was about to die in the next village, the village over. And she would go over to help them prepare to pass and kind of be a midwife of death and, and then bury them, help them pass and bury them and prepare them. And her name is Anastasia. And I, I never knew her maybe because my mom was a little nervous about her, but I, I chose my middle name, Anastasia, at the age of 12 for my confirmation. Right. Not knowing anything about her because I like the Russian princess in the Disney movie, you know? Like, <laughs> I was like, maybe, maybe me. But uh, yeah, so her face went white when I announced my new name. And, and she's like, why did, why did you choose that? And I was like, oh, I just like the princess. But I really feel my great grandmother in spirit when she does communicate with me, she's like, you know, you're the most like me. She's very proud and, but also really hardcore, <laughs> you know? So mm -hmm. she does come in a lot in, uh, in readings and such. So. And, uh, and you now, probably more so than then recognize her being around when you were young. I, I wouldn't have known. Yeah, I wouldn't have known because actually the in, growing up in Catholic school in a Catholic home and they, the priests were very afraid and I never understood because I would have dreams, especially now that I know what my great grandmother did, I would always have a lot of premonitions of who's, who's passing. I, I always kind of could see a little film reel or a little egg timer above the head and like when my grandfather was Ill, I, I knew the exact date his funeral would be about eight weeks in advance and I was like I just know I just knew this kind of thing and I have dreams of people who are going to pass and the priests I would say you know why you know why would God tell you these upsetting things like this means a little kid but why would they tell you someone's going to die if you can't do anything about it and I don't want to know these horrible things and I said is that is that the voice of God and of course these priests are terrified they don't know these things are true. I'm, I'm challenging their belief system. And they say, well, that's not the voice of God. And I'm thinking, oh, are you implying it's a voice of evil then? You know, it's really baffling when you are an innocent and these things are coming through. And I, and I really, that was my exit from the church when, when they said that, that that voice, that voice I've trusted that was never wrong, that really guided me and cared for me was something not of God. So I'm like, well, I'll, I'll have to find God outside this building then. Thank you very much, I'll make my exit. And um, my spiritual- And how old were you? Pardon? About how old at that point? Um, that particular, that last attempt was probably just when I, maybe about 20 years ago. Um, and, and that really was my exit and I really have not gone back. And now my family say at Christmas, I'll be celebrating solstice and they'll be celebrating Christmas. But Celtic Christmas is, you know, it's one and the same really, so. Right. We actually get along famously because they're they're exploring early Christianity and I'm exploring late paganism, maybe. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. It's it's brought out a lot, the best in both of us, I think. 
um, yeah, so I had to leave that behind, but I think, I love how Catholicism gives you ritual and gives you music and incense and it gives you so much magic and so much mythology that I'm not, I don't regret it for a second, but I'm so much happier in the trees than I am in, in the church, you know? Yeah, well, that's the problem, right? Putting everybody in the building and just trying to hold them there and separate them from the nature. I mean, that, that is the problem. The rituals and the ceremonies and the incense and a lot of what's there, there's a lot of beautiful Mm. to the ceremonies of the Catholic Church. Uh, the problem is that they, they use those walls to cut people off from their connection to nature. You know, yeah. at least at, at certain times in history, you know, as a form of control, right? And, uh, and that the is word, the problem. The word religion means to, to tie together. Yeah. And the word spirituality means to inhale, right? So I'm like, well, there's your answer. Yeah. Do you want to be, right. want to be that or do you want to be that? <laughs> well, I, I think I no brainer. <laughs> I think we knew that as a kid. I had my own journey with the Catholic Church as a kid, so uh, you know, oh, okay, okay. I didn't think I did very well in catechism. I caused too much trouble. Uh, <laughs> I was, you know, I just wanted to know. I was really curious. I was like, so I got a question because I walk down the streets, and you know, I live in right America, like in New Jersey. <laughs> um, uh, I'm not seeing. I'm not seeing you know evil spirits everywhere and certain things. And I just was like, I'm just. My question is. Do you think evil would exist if we didn't talk about it so much at the Catholic Church? <laughs> like with the devil, you know, like how many devil worshipers do you actually know? Uh, how many buildings are dedicated to the devil, you know, it, that aren't the Catholic Church? And yeah. so, you know, and I really was, yeah. and I was really sincerely asking. I wasn't being like, yeah. I, was, I was super young. We're talking, I started asking this, I think I was like nine or 10 years old. I was a Catholic. It was, uh, uh, pre-communion and so anyway that started the trouble and it continued because I never accepted sort of the you know don't ask too many questions kid kind of a thing I wasn't it's, it's a way. mystery it's always a mystery yeah. <laughs> yeah. well and I would say it is but you know but then on the other hand I would go home and have my dreams and you know I had yeah. these conversations that were happening over here and I'm like it is a mystery over there but I got this other mystery I could connect into right here I think this one's much more interesting I'm gonna hang with that so um, mystery. <laughs> yeah. um anyway interesting journey so you then, at some point, I don't know where in your journey, well, first of all, actually, let's, let's start, because we're actually at young years here. You know, you said to me, and I, I actually learned this recently, that you started uh, opera singing, studying opera mm -hmm. really young. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I, I was on stage pretty, pretty much from the age of six, like not massively professional stuff. I did a few tours with children entertainers and stuff. And I remember like the first audition I crashed was actually me running out of a kindergarten classroom to the gymnasium where the older kids were auditioning. And I just burst in like twinkle, twinkle, you know, like singing my twinkle, twinkle. And, uh, and I was put on tour really young. So, and my parents were just like, oh, what is this, you know, this exuberance. And we were doing like Amdram stuff together. And this, this opera singer who was in the shows with us, it was sort of semi-pro. Um, said that, you know, this kid needs training now. You know, I was just eating it up. I was, I was in it. I was just ready to go. So she lived with us in our attic and she was penniless. So she, she made her way here, teaching me and my sister how to sing. And I, I was with her from 10 to 20 and working so hard, competing. I missed a lot of school for kiwanis competitions and, you know, prize competitions and I was competing against people a lot older than me a lot of the time uh, but I loved it I was really just a natural performer um, storyteller really I didn't win necessarily because of my voice but because 
the words and conveying the story. I was just always like so excited about what I had to say. And that was really unusual for opera maybe that it was more about sound and, you know, and I just went out there and I just was, was whatever I was talking about. Uh, and I was probably channeling, but I wouldn't have used that, those words. But now right. that I have channeled, I'm like, oh, I was, oh yeah, I really just stepped out of the way and just, just brought, brought something through. And um, it was great. I, uh, and I was accepted into several opera schools. Um, and I chose to go to Montreal. And I was 18 years old when I went into the, the big opera training. And that's kind of what kind of had a shock actually I was like oh I do I actually love opera I, I it was just on such a fast track I came into this world like oh god yeah now it's getting real and I'm learning six languages and I'm in this massive competition and and you know the pressure just got got real real fast so yeah I, I how long did you stay in that before you I did five years at McGill Opera Performance Program, which is wow. an intense program known for breaking people, basically. Like yeah. now it's known as a mental health risk because at the time it was old school opera, which is if you survive this program, you will survive in the opera world, i.e. bullying and uh, we break you down, but we don't build you up. You survive, you know, and for a sensitive sort of empathic, I just want to tell stories kind of person. It was like, it was way too much. It was, it was really intense. Um, so Five years is actually a long time, I believe, in that program too, no? Yeah, well, well, a lot of, the way it was set up, there was, most people were failing all the time because you couldn't actually pass. It was kind of rigged. So people were doing a three-year program in about eight years was the average. Oh, wow. But I gave up. I gave up. <laughs> and instead, I was like, I'm going to, it was so weird. I'm like, this is bullshit. I can, I can make my own opera. I have a director friend. I have a designer friend, my best buds. Uh, we, we know what we're doing uh, and we just, we all dropped out together and we started an opera company and within a year we were hired back to the school to direct opera. <laughs> like, wow. They were really jealous that we knew how to make a good show and dress people well and, you know, have a concept and help people to act and it was like, it was so weird to have a pigeonhole after being a dropout. It was like, oh, okay, that's, that's such a weird way to do it, but yeah. So how do you go from opera and Montreal and your own opera company yeah. to London's West End? Can you tell us a little bit about hop? Yeah, well, I had this fantastic opera company with my two best friends, and we were like a three-headed monster. We were like early 20s and just like unstoppable in a way because we were just young upstarts. So we did a lot of Sondheim and Bernstein and Mozart and modern opera, ancient opera. We, you know, it was, it was so much fun. And I was, you know, we raised, I think our first full season, We I raised like, with them about half a million dollars and uh, for six months and we had staff of 35 like it, it just grew really really fast and at the age of 25 after running like a good amount of shows and a full season massive orchestra and all of this it just i just kind of burnt out real fast it took everything and if anyone has run a theater company out there you know like you lose your grant christmas day uh, you know, the Boxing Day, you're looking for the next grant. You, you know, we three of us together working in one opera company were below the poverty line, our, our money combined. So we were suffering to do this and we were young and it was kind of like, I, I need to play as well. I, I felt it was too, too old for how I felt. 
So I thought, okay, just for eight weeks, I'm going to go, I'm going to do a summer course at, at Lambda, the L London Academy of Music and Drama. I've mm -hmm. always wanted to study Shakespeare. I've never had it in my mouth and in my soul, and I need those words like now. So I called, I called them, and it was like day or two before the program began, and you were meant to audition, and I just went, I need to be in this program. I can't come and audition. I'm in Canada. Here's my CV, and here's why you should take me. And they were like, oh, yeah, okay, whoa. I sort of willed myself into the program. <laughs> So I did the eight weeks at some, in the summer and I was so, I was so fulfilled after the horrible opera training and, and the, the despair and the depression and the, the bullying, I found acting training is about being in the body and being in the soul and, and having a heart and having a mind. And I was like, oh, it's not just being a, a mouth on legs, essentially. And I was happy. And, and the wisdom of Shakespeare and the esoteric knowledge in the Shakespeare plays just that's when my spirituality really woke up like I, I think Shakespeare really is my first master you know his words and the it's packed with ritual it's packed with with astrology it's packed with everything magical you'll ever need so um at the end of the eight weeks the principal took me aside and went we need you to stay here <laughs> it's like i have a full season of musicals and operas i've auditioned for last year i have to go back and <laughs> like have to run this and and he's like you'll regret it if you don't and i'm like you're right i will i'll, I'll stay one year i'll stay one year. i'll do the postgrad <laughs> then i'll go back and i called the boys and i'm like just give me a year I'll, I'll go back i promise i promise i just i just i just need to do this and at the end of the year they were like you need to stay and audition and really try this for real or you'll regret it and i'm like oh but i meant to go back to my opera company oh and i call the boys <laughs> for our annu annual general meeting of i'm staying okay bye and um and i've been there 20 years now uh and i joke it's my 20 year eight week vacation because um you know i i tried it for real and you know i'm here i'm in london this big massive you know it is the broadway of of europe um, wrong training, wrong name, wrong size, wrong shape, wrong, no agent, no one to vouch for me. Like it, it was crazy. It was crazy, but I loved it because for me, the more impossible, the more likely, because you can't fail. If I, if I don't make it in London, it doesn't matter because it's a huge, stupid thing to try. So I'm like, <laughs> I might as well, you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter. I'm going to remember that approach. I kind of like that. Let's that, hope it's something huge and stupid that <laughs> Well, it doesn't matter. For you tarot uh, readers, it's like the fool on the cliff. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you know? How long yeah. were you there before, uh, before you got your first uh, West End? So, I, so my first summer was 2000. I ended 2001. I got out of the post-grad. I did a little bit of amateur stuff. My, I'm, I'm a Sondheim absolute fanatic. So my rule was, is it Sondheim? Yes. So I did a lot of Sondheim society stuff and concerts and cabarets and uh, and because I'd, I'd done a lot of his stuff already, I was kind of in there. Um, but then, uh, yeah, what was it? I was an usher in a terrible show about marching bands, cyber jammers. It was horrible. It was, <laughs> and you know, I was watching it a hundred times in a row. And this new show had opened up down in the West End, and it was called Jerry Springer the Opera. And I thought, perfect. Yeah, notorious, right? I watched it, I loved it. It was irreverent, it was naughty, it was demonic. And I thought, I'm an opera singer. I'm North American. 
okay, I can do this. So every ticket I would rip at this other show, I'd say, have you seen Jerry Springer? Have you seen Jerry Springer? And I'm like, I'm going to be in Jerry Springer. And I just, just started acting as if I was already in it and practicing the words at home and listening to the disc and going, okay, when I have my audition, and I just absolutely assumed I'd be in it. And uh, I had no audition, no way to get an audition. And in fact, I'd pissed off a few casting directors to the point where they were sending back my CV saying, please don't come. Um, and I listened to these, I was in a cafe and these two women were complaining about their auditions for Jerry Springer and how they had to staple their CV to the back of their photograph and how weird that was. And how this one casting director always said you had to do this. And I was like, noted. Um, so I did that, I wrote this outrageous letter and I went, I have a high C, I tap dance, and I've been on the Ricky Lake show. You have to see me. <laughs> and I sent it in. And they, the casting director was basically like, you got the job at the letter. Like no one had that sort of audacious, like I was only in the audience at the Ricky Lake show. Like I wasn't a guest or anything. <laughs> like, I was just watching, but technically I was on the Ricky Lake show. So um, I, I went in on a Thursday, I, I tap danced, I sang my high C. Um, I wore terrible polyester clothing that one of the other girls was like, I bet you can't wait to take that off. And I'm like, oh, this is just my clothing. Oh, gee. <laughs> I went in on the Thursday and I, I, was, I was in rehearsals on the Monday because someone had had a nervous breakdown and they needed to recover, they needed to cover right away. So I was in, I was in. Me and another girl were in. And suddenly I'm on the West End. And before the week was out, because it was such a stressful show for the voice, um, I was on stage with a score within a week. And because I had practiced with the disc, and I actually had had it memorized going in, because I was pretending I was already in it, I was on stage before I'd been rehearsed. And it was like, whoa, wow. whoa. And it was a big show and the biggest thing I've ever done, like two hours of opera, the highest notes I could hit, the lowest notes I could hit, Arabic war cries, and, and expletives, like 3,000 swear words a night combined. And they're really hard on the voice. Like, they're, really hard. they're very uh, percussive. In the way that you have to sing them, right? Um, With the intention. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. What, um, how long were you in that? How long was that run for you? That, I did 535 performances in a row. Wow. 18 months and uh, it, and I didn't really know how sensitive I was at that point, but spiritually it was very, very dark. And there was a lot of hatred that I had to portray in it. My voice got very hard. My heart got very hard. The management was very challenging. The mental health of the, of the cast was disintegrating. Like it was, it was intense. And there were actual invocations to Satan and the demons that Stuart Lee, who's a brilliant comedian, had pulled from actual spell books. So again, the theme of my ancestor comes through in this misuse of magic. He threw in this actual invocation. And I remember every night just being like, oh. you know, there were certain bits that would just make my skin crawl. And I didn't really know why, because I was spiritually still finding myself. Um, but, but that was intense. I had to, I actually had to retrain my voice after that, because it had gotten so hard and so high and so shrill. That was going to be my question. What was your process like coming out of that? You know, how long was that? What was that process? So, yeah. So, because, I mean, if you're talking about those kind of invocations, also having a lack of awareness, you're saying, you know, yeah. and 
you know, singing in a way that's, that's, you know, better. <laughs> you're actually trained to know better. than yeah. singing, right? yeah. And, and, and you're and, training to do it. That's a whole lot that you were sort of carrying in your, in your body, in your, in your attention. An opera singer, you do how many, you do maybe four performances with two days in between. So you save yourself. Suddenly eight shows a week, you're in, you're in, you're in. I was like, sorry, what? But my throat hurts. <laughs> um, yeah, and as an empath, what I didn't understand what I was doing at the time is I was trying to clear the space. I was always trying to clean the sick building, the theater itself, and I was protecting the cast. So I didn't know that. I didn't really understand how my energy worked at the time and where it was going. So I got ill a lot. And I, uh, I would get this really serious lung infection. I would lose my voice and I'd have to be off for a week. So I had, I had breaks that were more like breakdowns because I didn't really understand how absorbent I was and how protective I was. And I, I didn't know it was an ancestral thing as well. <laughs> so after that, what, the joy of really being in that amount of darkness and being in that shadow, um, was that it brought me in my daily life closer and closer to light, like spiritual things. That's actually when my spiritual awakening really started to, to kick in because I had to balance. So I started finding healers, seeing healers, trying meditations, you know, trying Tai Chi, yogas, things like that. Because like my soul was crying out for that balance. And really, I wasn't that interested before, but it pushed me into that dark corner where I had no choice. Um, yeah, and that, that brought me into getting more into nature and into the countryside and the recovery. I'm maybe still recovering. I don't know. It was intense. What was your next show on West End? Um, what, did do? what came after that one? So that's 2004-ish. Um, I think, yeah, so really after that, I find um, I would get shows with an intention. So I'd send forward what I need after that. So after such a troubled cast, I said, send me like the friendliest, most beautiful, happiest cast. And, and I, it was such an ugly show. I said, I want to feel beautiful. and I want to feel feminine. Find me that, right? And I was notorious for like being able to get jobs if I set that intention, didn't get in the way. It was great. So really quickly after that, I was in uh, this cast of Evita, the Michael Grandage production with Elena Roger. Um, and the cast, the first three days of the, the rehearsals were tango. So what they did was they, they made us tango with each other, every person with every person. So the cast just, and it was such a warm, beautiful, friendly cast because we'd held each other and, and the men honored the women and the women exalted the men. And that cast to this day, to this day we're Zooming in the pandemic because we just, we had something. And, and that shows, uh, really special anyway in that you're always on stage you're always together like there's not a lot of backstage idle time for things to brew and and you know idle minds and all that so we're supporting this central story of this goddess essentially so it's, it's another dark story like I've done I seem to go into the darker side of the sh showbiz but uh, yeah. we had Argentinian lead and she was channeling Eva like this times I was looking up at that the balcony going it's a newsreel. She, she's not there anymore. Ava's with us, you know. And uh, I was working with a, a group of Australian alchemists at the time, and they went, you're healing this. You are healing that nation. And, and during the run, her body was recovered and actually moved through the streets of Argentina and buried beside her husband at last. Like there was actual outside proof that our, our love and devotion to that story 
um, did, did some healing. And every show I've done, I, I always ask like, what, what can I offer as well? What, what, what good is this for the world? You know, like, because um, the one just after that was a, a Holocaust musical based in the Warsaw Ghetto. And I was like, oh, don't make me do it. I can't lift that. I can't, I can't live in that. But, you know, spirit are like, you're on. This you're on. Healing, this that came after Avita. Well, there, there was a tour in the middle of Aspects of Love. And that was fun to see the, the world. But it wasn't as profound. That was more about me learning about what love wasn't. <laughs> to be blunt. <laughs> um, but then imagine this, this musical uh, written by... Um, well, paid for by Holocaust survivors and written by the children of Holocaust survivors. It was a very personal passion project. Like it was so personal. I and I was imagine. asked, yeah, and I was asked to play a survivor who survived a gas chamber, like who came out somehow. And uh, Esther Kestenbaum, I was asked to, to portray her. And I was like, it's an honor, of course. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Um, and we gave a lot and, and I, and, it got kind of method. People were taking on very deeply reading diaries and letters and it, it was a lot to hold. But we had a wonderful, the man playing the head Nazi was actually um, a Rinpoche, like he would chant Buddhist chants on the oh, wow. stage every night and prepare the space for us. And I was doing my little bit and um, uh, we were all taking really good care of each other. And Spirit said to me, um, if I, all you need to do is a hundred performances is what I understood. And they did the math of how many people that would heal, how, how many people they, they needed to send love and energy to. And I was like, hundred, okay, a hundred performances, fine, fine, we can do that. Cause it was gonna be controversial and it probably wasn't gonna run that long. Um, and the producer who, uh, Beth, she was so of the light and, and treated us with such respect and honor. Um, she fought so hard for it, but the world was just against it. It was like opening at Christmas Hanukkah. It was like a disaster. It, and they were calling it Holocaust the Musical. It was just like, oh, oh, oh my no. gosh. Yeah, and Andrew like whoever who owns the theater was like, you have to make a million in your first week. And it's like, well, that's not gonna happen. You know, so it was like, it was like being really, we were under an enormous amount of pressure to make this beautiful piece of theater. It flawed, it was flawed for sure. But the, the musical lyrics were just delicious, the book, needed more love we did our absolute best with it but it closed we, we rehearsed for 10 weeks and it closed after four and I was furious because I, I I could see the souls watching I could feel the presence of the souls in the theater with us not a lot of audience members but a lot of invisible audience members and I'd be like hello <laughs> you know I hope this helps and, uh, and I was so depressed when we had to shut it down and so angry that we hadn't made our, our hundred performances and they went they went, but count the days back to the first day of rehearsal. And I was like, well, it's a hundred days. And they're like, well, spirit don't care if it's a rehearsal. <laughs> like we've been watching you the whole time. And I'm like, fine, fine. Okay, if, if I can offer that. But people took on a lot, a lot of weight and sorrow um, to make that beautiful link. If, imagine this, to make it live as long as it could. But. Uh, we did our absolute best, <laughs> but that was heavy lifting. Um, it was of the light, a really beautiful show. Um, Sometimes the work that we do is not always, you know, all of us have to, to live with that, right? I think it does actually happen to every human being. I just mm -hmm. don't know that we all, 
find the space to honor it. But sometimes the work that we're doing isn't for the reason that we think we're doing it or for the people yeah. that we're doing it for. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it's just about actually showing up and doing it. And that's yeah. enough. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a lot of things and Michael knows that living with me. There's certain things I'll do that that maybe will never be appreciated, seen mm-hmm. or you know, visualized that it, it doesn't matter, I have to do it. Yeah. Um moments and uh yeah. And yeah. you show yeah. up for that. And uh and if you sort of get that guidance, you know, you don't sit there and go like, Oh, is it is this real or not? Or like you show up for it. Yeah. If, yeah. You know, that's what it means to to do the work sometimes. So yeah. very cool. Um I Actually, I'm going to open my little iPad here. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm going to. No, no. It's actually, uh, I just uh, want to, so in your bio, okay. you said uh, psychic medium, seer, trans channel, occasional oracle. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, uh, priestess trained in illusion and Egyptian mystery traditions, practitioner of ritual and planetary magic, workshop leader, and celebrant of traditional Celtic Wheel of the Year ceremonies. Very cool. Uh, landscape communicator. We got. I want to hear about that one. Um, and teacher, remote viewing, uh, psychic development, and immersive astrology. Yeah. So that's a lot. <laughs> um, and I so relate. By the way, I actually purposely. <laughs> Uh, I never, I remember years ago trying to create this business card and at a certain point I just gave up and stopped creating a business card because I just thought that looks absurd. Yeah. There's just a certain point where you're just going to be like, okay, what do, you, what do you actually really do? Like, who are you really? Yeah. But, yeah. but at the same time, you know, I understand that, that this is really what you do. So <laughs> my question is, um, can we talk a little bit about your training around some of this? I know that I know some training, but, but if you could, uh, and you don't have to sort of, um, I'm not looking for you to qualify anything uh but just sort of curious if you talk a little bit about your journey around around all of these different yeah what they're saying to me right now is just tell them you're a tree and that these are branches but you have a solid trunk (laughs) yes (laughs) i'll take that that's That's true because especially with my artistic talents everyone's like photography painting singing songwriting what what and i'm like they're all storytelling dude like it's really just facets of one larger thing so don't panic do you know what i mean (laughs) i actually thank you guys i'm gonna i love it because that makes 100 sense you have have good roots and a thick trunk you can have a lot of branches but what i still want to talk about is It is obvious from talking about your story that, you know, it's not like uh, you were necessarily, I mean, you were being raised in mystery schools, but it wasn't necessarily that you were being raised in mystery schools in a conscious way where you knew that and getting training. So I guess what I was curious about is if you could talk a little bit more about learning and, and sort of taking the dive into this, whatever direction that started a little bit about. Oh, oh gosh. Yeah. It's like where to start and how to explain it. It's, it is a mad journey. It's an odyssey, oh. really. Just pick pieces. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of Jerry Springer, um, part of that was going into the marketplace and tasting everything. I mean, there is that stage where you go, what is remote viewing? What is trans-channel? What is, what is, what is? So um, I think that's an important stage for everyone in their development is to try and just see what fits and take the best bits and create your your solid plate from the bar. You know, <laughs> there is that. So I went through that phase probably during Jerry Springer. Um, but then what was interesting, and this is probably the landscape calling, um, I was really attracted to Glastonbury, this very magical part of, of England. And I thought, this is during Harry Potter craze. I wasn't that magical yet. I was kind of accidentally magical. 
And I thought, I'm going to go on Halloween and see where the witches are and see their striped socks and their pointy hats. You know, I went as a tourist, you know, <laughs> as you do. And I'm I showed up. <laughs> so I showed up in a bar in Glastonbury under this the magnificent hill of Tor, this like maybe the third chakra of the planet, this incredibly powerful PowerPoint on the planet. And, and I'm looking at these witches having their AGM next door. And I'm like, oh my God, I love your costumes. You guys are amazing. And they're like, sorry, costumes, what? What? <laughs> you know, it's just them. And so I was like, yeah, okay, this, this is real. And I showed up at this B&B and this woman, she was amazing. This, she called herself Isis and she, I showed up and she went, oh, Nellie Melba, opera singer, you are here. And I'm like, oh, okay, I do sing opera, that's fine. And she goes, um, I was Sarah Bernhardt, darling, come in, come in. We have lives, we have lives. And I'm like, oh God. And as a writer, as an actor, I'm like, I'm gonna play her someday. Take notes, take notes. <laughs> Still very much on the outside observing this mad world, right? And she goes, uh, I was waiting for you. It's about time you showed up. I need to go to Egypt uh, immediately. And I'm like, okay, cool. I always wanted to go to Egypt. And she went, here are the keys. Would you run the place for me? I need to go for a month. And I was like, out of Jerry Springer, exhausted, not working yet. You know, I was like, okay, I've never run a B&B before. And this is not a B&B. This is a retreat center, a healing center. It's, you know, a ritual center. She, she, and I said, why would you trust me? You're leaving me the cash box and the card machine. <laughs> what are you doing? She goes, I know you, darling. I know you. I trust you. And she literally dropped the keys in my hand and went off to Egypt. And wow. I was left. <laughs> And that's left. It's, it was this incredible um, complex. It's the highest point on the tour you can sleep. It's actually the closest to the point. And she had a, a hut beyond that was even more on the ley lines, the Michael Mary, you know, some of the serious juice oh, wow. that runs through England. And there's the red well and the white well, and she had the blue. And she had this incredible nine-pointed crystal uh, star made of pure quartz with a quartz below that and below that. She had amethyst as big as a armchair I'm <laughs> just wandering around this place just no idea what I was doing there but I I was open-minded I was I had a sense of humor people who showed up I healed them as best I could uh I took care of the money somehow and and I washed the floors and and she came back and she's like I knew it I knew you'd be excellent I'm like oh my god what's happened and she goes as my gift you know I wasn't being paid and as my gift, I'm going to train you as, as a priestess in the, in the mysteries. And I'm like, yes, yes. So it began eight years of what, and, and I, this is what I can't believe, is that I maintained a West End career, an audition career, and a, a, a life in London while going back and forth to Glastonbury to do some of the most intense initiations, downloads, uh, DNA activations, uh, ceremony, like, I, and, and often I'd come off stage and I'd be on, on, on the phone channeling. So that, that's the occasional oracle. I was like, off stage taking my makeup going, okay, go. <laughs> you know? And having some incredible, incredible encounters with people from all around the world coming in, like, all you have to do in Glastonbury is sit still and wait and people will come. It's a magnet for the best and worst of all humanity. It is like, I call it the, the door to heaven and the gate to hell. And you can feel when one is open and one's not. So you, you have to be careful. It's not, not for sissies, I don't think. Yeah, I, I've been there a couple of times, I agree. Yeah. And I don't I mean, think 
so powerful, amazing. So powerful, right? And I don't think anyone should live there un unless they're guardian. I think it should be a passing through place. But I managed, I managed about eight years and did some work that I will never forget. Like, and and a lot of I, I'm unable to share um, because of the the promises I've made. But um, yeah, it was absolutely incredible, and that. That was my main main magical training, but it also and and the trans the trans channeling there. I was I was channeling so much. I was I was under for hours on end, and I had uh, people calling from all over the world. I had teams of people uh, doing healing work in Egypt and Greece, and I was sending them to coordinates, saying, you know, find that fountain, that person, that thing. Um, and one of the biggest works we did is I I anticipated the Egyptian revolution by about five days. So we had people on the ground there to help out. And um, we, we did a lot of healing work, like, oh, like the, I remember there was a, what was it in the Gulf when the oil spill was happening? We anticipated that slightly and we're doing our best to help out. And we would just send healing energy and spiritual technology to help out. And it was, it was incredible, but also did get to the point where I was so much under, I was so much in trance that it was harming my physical body. They weren't really respecting my body. Like I wasn't getting a lot of food and water. I was like just working, working, working. And again, I was burning out and um, bringing in these incredible ascended masters and angelics and really, really high vibrational um, beings. And they were like, this is not good for you. And they would give one message to the group and another to me going, get ready to leave. We're going to take you out of this, get ready to leave. And they were making me stronger kind of secretly while I was trans channel and um and eventually I, I had to I had to surreptitiously leave I had to actually sneak away <laughs> at, at dawn I had to like sort of climb the wall and get out of there and I was an asset so it, it didn't end very well and uh so I don't have terribly happy memories of that but um uh, it was intense yeah but do you still maintain your you still maintain your connection your not to them and I have a question because you, you know with with the work do you actually do sessions for people or is all of the work sort of more like in group and in circle and more in a sacred uh like particular way yeah well I've now I'm in a process of healing from that community and that misuse of power again which is another part of my journey and my family's journey so it's like um <laughs> I actually stopped for a while because I had to heal and I, it was just too much, too much all at once. So I've retrained again. I had to go back to square one and like, what is a chakra? I was sent back to kindergarten and, ha and what Spirit is saying is now it's for you. It's for no one else. Yeah, you went to uh, mediumship school in London, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, so I went to the College of Psychic Studies. And I started from scratch. I absolutely went to beginner, beginner, beginner. And it was so weird having been what I was and to have that humility and go, yeah, I want to start again and I want to do it healthy. And I want to do it for me to take care of me and just let all that trauma go. It was fantastic. And I had lovely teachers uh, who really, who could see, who could see all of that. And it was great fun in the class, like suddenly, you know, things would pop out in the beginner's class that were not beginner things. <laughs> it would be like, the whole class kind of would jump ahead a level because it was just like, it just came back in such a lovely, healthy way. So I was really grateful to do that. And, and to so if people are interested, you would recommend the London Psychic School. I don't mean to interrupt, but just yeah, to yeah. up. Because uh, people do yeah. ask, 
where to go and get training at sure. times. Sure, College of Psychic Studies. Um, I'm teaching myself, and I think I'd be open to private sessions. I think I'm coming around to that. And um, I'm, I'm going to be teaching remote viewing very soon if anyone wants to play. <laughs> so. You know what? Let's pause on that for a second. Uh, yeah. How would people find out about that? Like, no um, website, know this. Like, how do they, I know. How do they yeah, and, and I don't think you even have a social media for them to follow. So, like, um, yeah, yeah. what, you know, and, I, you know, we can uh, tag on if you want, like, later. I could actually put mm. a podcast post, an email or something. But, yeah, yeah. But if you, if you want people to actually come to the class, you have to give them an opportunity. And that's, that's part of the, uh, the initiation. <laughs> you, have to, you have to find yeah. your Listen, I took my, my godson to a shaman. Uh-huh. In, in Mexico, and they told us what town he was in. Yeah. Uh, but he would not respond with his address or where he lived or where he was in the city. And uh, and my friend was one arranging it, his, his mom. And uh, and there was a point where, like, we were landing in the plane and we still didn't know where we were going. And she's like, okay, we're going into this weird area of Mexico in the middle of yeah. like nowhere. And she started to freak out. And I was like, oh, that's the initiation. Like we have to do it, you know, and uh, we have to find them. And, and so we drove to this town and I just, uh, at a certain point we were going, I started following my intuition once we got to the city and we were driving down this road and literally flying, you know, not super, we were doing about 50 miles an hour, but on a one lane road with the trees like this, you know, a jungle all around you, it was pretty fast. And yeah. uh, part dirt. Uh, and uh, I'm driving and all of a sudden I like hit my brakes and I looked and I was like, I think he lives right there. And, uh, and, and I forgot what was in the sun or what was there, but they both looked at me and they're like, like, you're crazy. Like, who does it look there? Like, why? Like, why would it be there? Like, why now? Like, this sudden stuff. And uh, so I was like, okay, whatever. I think it's there, but okay. So I kept driving and, uh, and I drove us into the village and the village was like um, these shacks. And it was like, I mean, it was so poor. It was so sad, actually, in a certain way to see. Like, literally they were, had these like, meat hanging with flies on it and like it was like one of these places where you're like part scared part like it's amazing you know (laughs) and uh and we stopped and and she's like i'm gonna ask one of these people they have to know who he is i'm like okay so she went and asked and did her best to sort of communicate and uh basically pointed down the road to the drive by the iris and said that was it and they were like yeah drive back that way and point oh we know who you know they were very nice and welcoming uh anyway i was right about the driveway but yeah. yeah Oh. Anyway, so you could you could try that if you wanted. Um, yes. It may limit the come, but because uh, a lot of people might sit there being like, "Yeah, no." <laughs> <laughs> no, it's but true. Um, serious students that way. This is me coming out of you know secret work, deeply secret work in mystery schools. Like I'm not yeah. used, but you know people have come to me, and I've actually started a small forest school with a with an incredible sorceress in London in a in a wood near my home. And uh, we were just getting going before the pandemic. So all of this was about to emerge. And I'm running workshops with uh, a sound healer and incredible fire master also. So um, yeah, I, yes, I have to get my, my socials together basically, because spirit are like, yeah, you don't have to do anything. Think about what you want to do. In the meantime, anybody listening, if you have an interest, you know me, (laughs) email me. And I'll, okay. if you have an interest, then I'll, yeah. I'll connect with, with Aoife. But if you ever want me to add a post, that's all I want you to know. Of is course, I can that'd be that great. Um, okay, so uh, so two things I'm going to say, just to tell everybody, if you guys have any uh, questions just before we close up tonight, I just want to let you know there's a 
Q&A box here. I didn't say it early. I still don't have Lizette with me, so you know, I forget these things. I need, I need Lizette. Uh, <laughs> but there's a Q&A box that you guys are welcome to if you have any questions for Eva. Um, uh, and, uh, and we can ask them. But, um, or you can just continue taking this, this really interesting conversation because now we're going to go to, and, uh, and this is sort of my last, I won't you know, keep you too long. This is my last subject I just wanted to make sure we got to tonight because um, it really feels uh, important actually to me. Um, and it's, it was in the bio again, you know, I, I just went through the bio and was like, oh yeah, these are the things I wanted to talk about for the most part. Uh, uh, your current project, Drawing Strength. Um, you know, first of all, I love that it's a channeled visual art, uh, spoken word, creative nonfiction, from the lives of uh, great artists and how their grit and resilience can inspire us all in times of great uncertainty. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what sounds like an incredible piece for these times. Um, yeah. but I also seem to remember uh, that these artists were actually coming to you, that you were actually having dialogue with mm -hmm. these artists um, okay. in the spirit. So uh, anyway, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the show, talk a little bit about this dialogue with them. Yeah, uh, yeah. So the origins of this project, um, I was commissioned from an album I released in 2009 to write a musical. And the producer said, can't afford a book, can't afford a movie, write an original story or write a, or find a really old story. and in my naivete, of course, I thought the songs are seasonal. They have a lot to do with cycles, coming of age, uh, growing up. And I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do the story of Hades and Persephone. That's a lovely story. And, and all the songs will fit in and I could write more songs. And uh, I fell into this rabbit hole <laughs> of this beautiful story of the origins of the season, this abduction of this woman, this sexual awakening, all these beautiful, really rich subjects. And then underneath that, I discovered the Elysian, the Elysian mysteries. So these, this ritual act of theater slash ritual, not just theater, it was immersive in that the, the audience would, would hurt with the people, would, would laugh with the people, would cry with the people. So I, I, I spent about seven to nine years of my life traveling again in between shows when I could and joining secret societies and initiating myself into these rites. Uh, going deeper and deeper, a lot of time in Greece, in Eleusis, in uh, Delphi, in Olympus, like all these really powerful places. So this musical ended up being channeled. And when I outgrew my ability to write the music, and I didn't know Michael yet, <laughs> so I, uh, I had to hire someone who could write like an octet, a duet, a trio. I'm, I can write for myself, but I couldn't write for what is a, a baritone, a tenor. So I hired this beautiful, uh, this composer, Fergal Mahoney. And um, he entered the mysteries with me. So we both went really deep into this ancient magic. This predates, it's 5,000 years before the Christian church. It kind of taught the Christian church how to baptize, how to do um, last rites, everything. So we traveled together through this really intense, magical, artistic process. We were really, really close, bound and adored each other. Um, and, and grew together. Like it was a really challenging, wonderful piece about overcoming the fear of death because life always follows death and we should love it, prepare for it. We should grow up to, to look forward to it. Um, and the Illusion Mysteries, uh, the, the final piece of the Illusion Mysteries 
as far as we can know, it is the best kept secret in the universe, but <laughs> it would be a last hymn saying, never be afraid of death. This is natural, accept it, it's beautiful. So my composer, Fergal, he was 31 years old, um, writing astounding music, getting more and more complex, beautiful. But unfortunately, when he wrote that last hymn, he finished the last note, and in his sleep that night, he passed away. It's just respiratory failure, he passed on. Um, and very young and very shocking. Um, and yeah. we're closer than I knew. Like, you don't really know how, how close you are to someone until you lose them that suddenly. So I went into this very dark place. I, you know, I went into my first proper real loss of someone I loved. Like, grandparents you've never met in Ireland is a very different situation than that other half artistically and energetically, magically, we were so deeply bound. So I went into deep shock and confusion because a lot of what we were writing about was death and death was our main character. And I was like, whoosh, 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 whoosh. So I went into what I like to call a state of grace. And some people call it PTSD. <laughs> like some people call it shock. Some people call it extreme grief or what have you. The soul and the body is just blasted, absolutely. So in that, in that state of grace, um, I, I had such a void where he was missing. And um, I had this st weird story of Picasso when he lost his absolute best friend and artistic collaborator, when he murdered himself in a bordello. Uh, Picasso painted blue for three years. He just couldn't paint anything but blue. His famous blue period that actually made him as an artist. And I went, I, I need to paint blue or something. What is my blue period? What am I going to do, <laughs> you know? And it was funny, in grief, I, my world went into black and white and I couldn't see color very well. So I, I picked up a pen and I'm like, well, artists are extraordinary people who have survived worse than this and, and more. Like, how, how did they do it? How did they create in times of extreme trauma? <laughs> and the first person because I couldn't really sleep. I was, you know, having night terrors and extreme problems sleeping because I was afraid of not breathing and it was, it was very intense. The first artist that sort of showed up at my doorstep was Frida Kahlo, who of course is the survivor of survivors. Like you couldn't throw more at her and she couldn't have created more beauty from extreme exquisite pain. So I drew her, I drew her at night and I put the pen down, I fell asleep and I woke up the next day and she was still with me. So it was like, oh, I have company, someone to walk and talk with me. And, and that day she was absolutely with me, in dialogue with me. We were talking about the color blue and pain and her tram accident and, and she kept me company. But as the sun set, she, she was off. And then, you know, in comes George Orwell. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna draw George Orwell. <laughs> and I'm not a great, uh, I wasn't a great, illustrator by any means these are very primitive they're actually they look kind of like comics um and and he stayed with me for the day and was incredibly awkward and pessimistic but that was also very useful and then day after day they at sunset a new one would come in they would be with me at night and walk with me through the day i didn't know how long this would go i i just gave in to it i actually couldn't do much else for a lot of the time i could i didn't have a lot of physical energy or wellness and they, would, they were incredibly good company. It ended up being exactly a year and a day, which in Celtic terms is a perfect spell, you know? So I drew 366 portraits 
and spent 366 days with some incredible souls. And some artists were living, so, you know, you know, Tina Fey did not show up at my door, but her work did. Her, her humor, <laughs> I, you know, 30 Rock, I gorged on it and I felt like I was with her. But the, the ones that had passed were literally showing up. And it led to some like incredible adventures like T.S. Eliot shows up and he's incredibly awkward and he's feeling very shy and very, you know, uptight. And I'm like, all right, we're going to see the matinee of cats. Like we're going to cats. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what we're doing today. And, you know, they would come with me in my life. And I have this great noble winning poet beside me watching his words, watching the lycra and the scratching and the hissing. And <laughs> just like, but again, it was incredibly healing because I saw my moment. I was Grisabella, you know, the stench of grief that keeps the other kitties away and you're not being held by friends because they're afraid. And I got an, ex an extreme moment of compassion for those people that, that leave you in grief. And I'm like, oh, I get it. You're just afraid. It's not me. And he got a moment seeing his wife Vivian as Grisabella in that ripped coat and the terrible tights and the makeup and, and his guilt was alleviated and he got to leave having been lifted, you know, to the heavy side layer, if you will. Um, and you know, I just, I just had these adventures and they came wherever, they came to auditions, they came to work, they came with me to grief counseling. I had William Blake with a grief counselor. <laughs> I was like, how do I explain the heckling I'm getting right now? Thankfully I had a cool grief counselor who, um, who went with it. And uh, it, was, it was just, it was wonderful. And I call it drawing strength because every day I was drawing and every day they made me just that little bit stronger. The lessons were, were absolutely tiny. Like they weren't necessarily big life lessons, but they, they just forgave something or smoothed something over or just, or gave me some of their strength. Like you want to sit with Frida Kahlo if you think you're in pain. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, so, Frida was the first one. Yeah. Who was the last one? Yeah, the granddaddy of, of I call him the patron saint because Picasso comes in at the end. And he went, so you had your blue period, how did you do? And I, I drew him in blue on, on Guernica. And actually my drawing is incredibly intricate. Whereas the first one of Frida was like, like a child drew it with a wax crayon. But, um, and his message at the very end was basically, now you're your own artist of the day. And you know, you are artist enough, you don't need us anymore. And he's, he's tough as well. So it was like, oh, don't leave me. <laughs> It was half don't stop and half I need a break. <laughs> but yeah, he was sort of the patron because of that. If I didn't have that initial story of him, I wouldn't have gone into that. Um, uh, it opened you, right? That's the part is, is that a lot of times, uh, one of the things I, I love talking to you and, and is uh, you talk so matter of factly that these things are happening, right? You know what I'm yeah. saying? You know, it sort of felt like, like you really no. and, and, and own it. Uh, and I do think, uh, which I'd love to know, how you got to that place where you were able to own it. But before you answer that, um, I think that a lot of times, you know, when we're led to something like by, oh, Picasso's blue period, and then we start to have this experience, it's somehow we let that invalidate the authenticity of our experience, you know, or to somehow lessen the reality, like, oh, this is something that's happening with me right now. You know, yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't Picasso's, you know, blue period. It was, it was my blue period. period. That's right. And it was important yeah. these things, you yeah. know. Uh, but I think that that's one of the things I just see with so many people, uh, you know, that I've worked with as a psychic and, and working Ooh. with people. When, when those synchronicities happen, when those magical things happen, how, how quickly people are willing to explain it away or put, sure. it over, 
put it over there or not explain it away, but also lessen it. Well, I'm not that. Okay. You know, what are you exactly? Um, so, so when I love the, the honesty in the story, but also the honoring of the story. Um, oh, and I'm happy for those that need to think maybe I was mad. Maybe it was a, a brief psychosis. Um, I'm happy if people want to think it's imagination. I don't, it actually doesn't matter. Um, but I do have proof in that like, you know, Gershwin Day, uh, I didn't know George Gershwin died at 38 from a brain hemorrhage. I had no idea. But Iris shows up and he tells me this. And he's talking about like the last song they wrote together was um, Our Love is Here to Stay. And, and what it means to be a lyricist left without your composer. Like it was such a, an honest heart to heart with this man. And I'm like, I didn't know that when he showed up. I knew it afterwards. But I keep having these things, accurate information that's coming through. Right? Whereas, yeah. uh, so, and, and, and I'm blessed to be around other people with sight. Like at my grief, well, my counselor right now, he looks at me and he goes, oh, we've got Jane Austen with us today. This is exciting. I'm like, great, that's who I'm feeling. So I don't have to feel insane. Uh, or, or William Blake, like he's, he's very interesting in that he did this exact same thing a hundred years ago. So he had this, this time in his life when 78 people from the past, kings, heroes, mythological um, figures, came to him night after night. So he did 78 nights that he called, what did he call it? The illuminated heads or something. Uh, so he had this exact, and it's not actually that rare. You know, no, it's not. Like Rodin, Rodin speaking to Michelangelo, Dante speaking to Virgil. Uh, you know, this continuum, this mandala just opened up and I went, oh, I'm just part of something much bigger. Of course, there are days you think you're insane. Like, I can't really be talking to this person, but you, it, it shouldn't matter if it's, if it's a part of your subconscious talking to you, then that's important too. If it's your imagination, then that's equally valid. It just happens that I have gifts that allow this. Well, your but, imagination is the most powerful magical tool that you have, yeah, right? Yeah, imagination yeah. coupled with your own heart, your own love, your yeah. own energy, right? You, you, and past you, lives as well. Like if 11 women need to be Cleopatra, then there's a part of them that resonates with Cleopatra and that's fine. It doesn't mean they... They, or there was a group soul that were her. You know, it doesn't matter. You, you look at why they need that and you think, hmm, okay, it probably means you want to feel regal or, you know, <laughs> devastatingly beautiful or whatever. I mean, she wasn't, but, you know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she was um, gorgeous. So what I wanted to ask you was, was there, was it natural for you? Were you always sort of like, did you easily take this very literal or was there sort of a journey from going between like, wow, I think this is happening and like, you know, mm -hmm. to like, oh, I was just talking with, you know, William. Um, you know, was there, was that journey for you or was there a journey there? Uh, you know, I was in a state of grace. I was so wide open. I had no filters left. I had no defenses. Um, all I knew was keeping me alive. It was keeping me well. I just had to live. Like I didn't, it took away all my choices. And it was, it was, I was, I was so, um, That's beautiful. so wide open. And now I'm, I'm writing the book now. So this, uh, it's called Drawing Strength. So I made a diary of that time. It's wildly incoherent because I'm not well. Um, and I'm writing like what hurts that day, a little bit of what they said, where we went. Um, and now I'm taking those diaries and from a place of wellness, I'm looking for the insight and the depth and what they actually gave me. Because in the day, I'm like, I just survived the day, hurrah. I get to do another, you know, who's coming next. So just living, living to draw and living to live. Um, but now I'm looking back at the experience 
and honing and mining for those, those nuggets. What was that strength? What, what was Gertrude Stein bringing to me? How did I live through that day? Because she showed up. So this book, a Spoken Word and Visual Arts, so I have all the portraits to show. Um, I'm writing a chapter about 800 to 1,000 words for each person, packed, packed, embedded with their biography, their voice, my voice, my voice now, my voice then. So they're really, they're really dense, but they're, they act as a ritual themselves to read them out loud. They're very uh, evocative. Uh, and, and some people who do read them say that they feel the person in the room. Like Isadora Duncan has been a menace to the men who read her. <laughs> so, and they're like, can you ask her to leave now, please? And I'm like, no, you're cute. And she's staying with you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, so, Did you ever uh, consider doing it as a one woman show, turning it into yeah, a I have. I've had a producer interested. I don't know what theater is doing right now. Um, well, I made, as a one woman show, you could potentially do it. I could do it online. online. I mean, it would be amazing, you know. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing readings. So I, there's someone who runs a salon. Oh, yes, the woman I run the school with. Uh, she, she's running the salon, and I went as Gertrude Stein, and I read my chapter as Gertrude Stein. So I'm doing readings at open mics and sharing it. I did two residencies, one at the Banff Art Center here in Canada, another in Norway, where they've, they've given me a grant to, to write these diaries into something coherent. So I really want to help people. Like if, if any one of my days can help one person in a dark corner, you know, that, that would be worth all the pain, all the suffering and all the survival. Um, and even just like, uh, I want to run workshops and interactive, like how to spend the day with William Blake. Like, do you want to meet him? I will introduce you to, to that, the essence of that man, you know, who was scorned. He was called a madman. He was disgraced. And he kept making art saying, God and the angels love it. I don't care. You know, like he's, a, he's a brilliant patron to get through a hard time, you know, and how to hang out with Lee Miller and how to hang out with, you know, all these incredibly um, resilient people. I want to share that and, and get people to find their own people. You know, like maybe my list is pretty Who obscure. Right. There's a lot of musical theater on there. People won't know. <laughs> um, and that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I think everyone has access in some way to it's it's like in their code somehow i don't know it's their pantheon it's their patron yeah well listen we do we do all have our access right and we are connected and we have to remember you know uh being one that we're all connected is not yeah. just, it's not just words it's not just a, a an idea it's literal you know and, and our consciousness might be um identified with this body with this identity with these, mm -hmm. this physical reality but if we choose to expand ourselves, each and every yeah. one of us, you know, not just the ones that are the so-called gifted, but each and every one of us, if we choose to expand into that awareness and into that consciousness, we may find that we have friends that what, we never would have imagined in people yeah, that we never, never might have known as humans, but, it, but we know them as, as uh, spirit brothers and sisters and soul friends. And, yeah. So, well, I tell uh, people it, it's love, it's resonance, and I love their work so much, and I love these people, these flawed, wonderful people. Like, I think anything you love, you can reach their frequency, you can meet and speak to it. I don't, I don't see there being a problem, and I give myself permission maybe as well, uh, and just saying, why, well, why couldn't I speak to them? And you know, sure, there's some I'll never resonate with, I'll never understand, and I won't, I won't be talking to them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it is, it is an act of love and a privilege for them as well to come and share with us, you know? And also it makes sense that a lot of them are musical theater. I mean, you're an artist, 
you're a music mm-hmm. theater artist. The other thing we have to realize is that, you know, if we open ourselves to channel, you're likely to attract those that will relate to you, just like friends and, and making yeah. friends. You know, there, there tend yeah. to be these, this, uh, this connection that happens there. You had a few weird ones that came in the side, like uh, Stravinsky and Britain were like, you have to have Auden or we're not coming in. <laughs> so I'm like, I met some, I met some because they were on their, on their path. And I'm like, Auden comes in with his funeral blues, stop all the clocks. And I'm like, yes, you're welcome. Let's, let's, let's hang out. <laughs> I mean, come yeah. on. That's fabulous. <laughs> I really think it would be a really interesting done as like a salon, done as, a, as an experience, yeah. especially yeah. given that the, you've been in some of these darker rituals. What an interesting idea, you know? And I also think, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, isn't it uh, the flawed human being, the broken, uh, bringing their best, like climbing up and moving towards their passion and, and like doing it because that's who they are, you know, yeah. and not stopping. Isn't yeah. that one of the most beautiful expressions of a human being, whether they're an artist, whether they're a parent, like whoever they are, yeah. you know? Um, and such a great reminder for all of us. We spend so much time in uh, so many people looking to perfect themselves, you know? And it's, you know, a human will never be perfect, but a human can be excellent, you and know? So and so let's, yeah. let's, let's be excellent. Let's be yeah. excellent selves, not our perfect selves. And, yeah. and with that, that comes because in our excellence, we can feel our passion and then our passion can be felt by others. Yeah. But in our perfection, we're trying to control things about ourselves, which actually stops the flow of our authenticity and stops the flow of our passion and people don't get to feel yeah. that from us. Uh, and we well, actually yeah. rob the world of the gift that we are. You know? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I got all that listening to you. I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, sort of what of an interesting way though to take people through a journey, journey like that. Yeah. So if people do want to follow, I, I do have the Facebook page Drawing Strength and Strength Drawing on Instagram. So I'll put up um, like, oh, great. If, and if, you know, I'm going to start doing remote viewing for people who are really um, wanting to get out of their own way, maybe who haven't done so much psychic work and just want to play. We're going to do some fun with that and just, just take the pressure off and try and land on some targets and try and have a sneaky peek around the world while it's sleeping. You know what I mean? It's going to be fun. So I'll put that up there. Maybe that's I mean, it sounds amazing. I'm coming to these classes. Like, yeah, come on, yeah. Right in, you know, um, sounds like yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I can't thank you enough for being here. It's been Thanks. really so much fun uh, yeah. sharing with you. I think your stories are incredible. Um, but also what you bring to those stories, the way that you've leaned in and, and allowed these things to unfold and trusted your manifestation you know it does seem to me that you were casting spells at a young age uh before you knew what you were doing you know like mm-hmm. learning those lines and putting yourself in the show and ripping tickets you know and saying Terry <laughs> Springer um yeah. you know fantastic uh, uh and uh and so much the psychic journey the spiritual journey you know which uh interestingly enough is so much the the artist's journey right it's yeah, yeah. Open. It's art is magic words are power it's like this, this artist, an esoteric artist is kind of an oxymoron, really. I mean, we should have access to all of this, I think. Just, just we have good roots and a solid trunk. We should have many branches as we want. <laughs> and you know what? What makes the artist, you know, the, the, the people that actually choose to create, they give room for yeah. that. For, yeah. and, and they give room, actually, even if they don't have room, even if they suffer it, they give room for their failures, right? For their, yeah. for, for falling on their face. So, 
I think the shaman. Really the shaman is an artist. You you work between two worlds: the imagination and the material, and you bring this thing through that never existed before. Like all art is ritual, mm -hmm. and all ritual is art. <laughs> thing. Yeah. So cast your rituals, folks. You know, uh, yeah. move your art and uh, and open yourself to channeling. And if you're not open to channeling someone else, then just open yourself to channeling something unexpected from within you. Just uh, play even. Just pretend to channel, and you will by accident. Like, just uh, take the pressure off. It's, yeah, have fun with it, you know? Yeah, uh, if you're going to cast any serious rituals, you know, just learn how to set some energetic boundaries around you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, not like me. <laughs> it is okay if you have a Catholic background to use Catholic saints. They will show up for you, you know? Yeah, they're nice. Yeah. But, but yeah, anyway, really been, it's been wonderful. Stay safe up there. By the way, family, I didn't ask you. Family, everybody's well, doing okay through this? Yeah. Oh my gosh, we're doing so much Qigong. That is our silver bullet. So my mom was immobile when I arrived and now is walking 10K a day. Wow. So I don't know, in this yin state, as you say, Qigong and grounding and good food and exercise. Yeah. We're all really healthy. I've been talking about that, that COVID is actually really asking all this whole time period. It's, it's <laughs> actually saying embrace the yin. Yeah. Yeah. They're also yawn, like get into the yin, like get into that inner space. And Qigong is a great way to support oh, that. I have nine, I, have, I think I have eight or nine uh, boomers, I call them boomer homeschool. And we do Qigong every day, all of us online together. And I, I just silver bullet for this, this level of, of shifting, changing. Yeah. It's been a real pleasure. We talked about so many cool things tonight. So <laughs> Qigong, if you don't know about it, Google it. It's great yeah. stuff. Uh, and there are videos online. You can even go onto YouTube and put in Qigong. And, and, uh, there's a lot of <laughs> Yeah, different practitioners that come up and you can find there's different styles of Qigong. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, a great internal, it's a moving meditation. Um, yeah, and a great, time, a great time to write as well. Like the, yep. it, it's write about the absolute present is what they're telling me. Like even I am writing a larger book, but they're like, write about now because this time will not come again. And like put it on paper and then put it away, but just capture it. Cause you'll be a different person a week from now, two weeks from now, three weeks from now. They're just, just that immediacy is really important. They were saying, so. Be here now. That's what we're being asked to do. Yeah. Like I said the other day, it's as if spirits put a bit in all of our mouths, like we're horses <laughs> and great spirits are pulling back on the bit saying, not so fast, slow down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, 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 what you're looking for is here. It's not over there. It's right yeah. here. There's nowhere but here and now, yeah. Beautiful. That's where we're going to end. All right, Eva. Thank you. Much love. Take care. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Bye everyone. Thank you. <laughs>